My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here on staff and have the privilege of teaching this morning. <laughs> Several weeks ago, we started a series in the, the, book of, the books of First and Second Timothy. And to open the book of First Timothy, we spent a couple weeks just talking through some contextual stuff with regards to uh, what was the, the city of Ephesus, who, were, who was Paul, who was Timothy, and just to kind of lay some groundwork. And so this morning, we're going to just d- like dive right in. And, um, and I'll preface this morning by saying there's some heavy stuff to talk about in here. The coming weeks, there's, there's a lot of heavy things to talk about. The encouraging part of this is that for us as the body of Christ, we have the opportunity to see sort of the reins and the parameters that Jesus has put on the church, um, how we can actually uh, structure and, and model the church in a way that it produces life, that it actually leads people to Jesus, that it doesn't go outside of the the bounds. And so uh, this morning as we jump into 1 Timothy, I'm just going to ask you guys to bow your heads. Um, we're going to pray. I want to ask the Lord to just open our hearts to hear from him this morning and that we can sort of approach this time in all humility to set aside the chaos of our week, everything that we've had going on, everything that we have going on after we leave here today to allow the Lord to speak to us. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time. I thank you for each soul represented in this room. And we do pray as we read your word that you would speak to us through it, God. Your promise in your word is that your word will go forth and it will accomplish what you set forth for it to do, Jesus, that it will not return void. And so I pray this morning that as we study it, we talk through it, that you challenge us, that you'd encourage us, that you'd equip us through it. God, I pray for those in this room that come here this morning, maybe just frazzled from the week that they've had. May they find you in this place, Lord, the one who would give us rest, the one who would turn our focus and our attention back on yourself. Lord, as we humbly come before you this morning, would you redirect our minds and our hearts towards you? And Jesus, it's for you in your name. Amen. Amen. Open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to start out just reading the first 11 verses in 1 Timothy 1. You with me? You guys have to be more excited than this this morning, okay? All right. I wore a pink shirt for you, so let's do this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murders, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. All right. It's easy oftentimes when we jump into a book like this to come to the first couple verses in a letter and and sort of take the first couple verses even for granted. We often want to jump right into the meat of where it is that the letter starts and just get to the heart of it. But there's a lot to be learned from the way many of the New Testament books begin. Uh, When we look at verse 1, we see this greeting, like a standard sort of letter format, like we all learned in elementary school. How many of you learned to write a letter in elementary school, right? Um, Dear so-and-so, and then the next line, you go into the letter, up front you date it. You know, there's all these format issues. The same rule sort of existed within the ancient world, right? They had different kinds of forms for different kinds of letters. And this letter that's given to Timothy, along with the rest of the epistles in the New Testament, they all follow a form. There's a structure to them. And that form includes naming the person that wrote the letter right out of the gate. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. 
And then the next thing he does is he names the recipient of the letter. Who's the recipient of the letter? Anybody? Timothy, right? To Timothy, he says, my true child in the faith. And then there's always some kind of greeting or prayer or blessing uh, on the recipient. And that's what you see next. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Two things that I want us to take note of, like right out of the gate. The fact that this is written in the form of a letter is actually kind of odd when you think about it, isn't it? Because if you looked at any like other world religions, um, it, you just don't often see their texts written in letter form. Is, these are not the kinds of things you would think would be written by spiritual people or thing, uh, letters like this that would be rallied around by, um, by, by uh, uh, religions around the world to reflect on. And it seems like you're sort of reading somebody else's mail when you read a letter like this, and it seems a little bit strange. And so why is it then when the first century church was collecting all these documents and they considered these documents to be God-breathed, why is it that they chose to collect a bunch of letters, like a bunch of mail written to individuals and then copy it for the whole church? I, I think it tells us something really special about our faith, if I'm honest with you. Like that our faith is not just some like ethereal fantasy. It's not just some out there thing, right? That our faith actually takes place in a very real world, that it took place with real people that had actual real issues and real problems. And so what happened was that you have this massive event, like you have the life of Jesus, right? And where Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth comes, he, he lives this perfect life, he, he teaches the way to God, he, he brings, um, he, he brought to fulfillment all of the Hebrew scriptures, like the prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures from the Old Testament. He fulfills it all. He presents himself as a king, the king, and then his own people end up killing him. And so he rises from the dead three days later. He shows himself not only to be the true king, but he actually shows himself to be the true God. This is really amazing. He was the one approved by God to actually lead his people. And then he does, in my mind, the most surprising thing. What does Jesus do after he rises from the dead? He shows up to his, his disciples for a brief period of time, and then what happens? He pieces out. Like he's just gone. Like right after he has this monumental victory and he spends these 40 days training his followers, Jesus just leaves. And then Jesus entrusts this whole movement of people, like his gospel, that he's been creating and building to them, to us, to his people. He entrusts the whole thing to us. And so these people who are eyewitnesses to his life and to his death and to his resurrection, they start spreading out throughout the Roman world. They start these communities of faith, like not that different necessarily from us right here. Um, and they start them all over the Roman Empire. They spread like wildfire. And so think about this, these messengers would often come to town and they'd stop for a few weeks or at most maybe they'd stay for a couple of years as is the case with Ephesus, which is the city that we're looking at here. And then they would stop and then they would sit and they would teach a group of people for a period of time. So can you imagine a church like this? Just think about it for a second. A church that doesn't have the New Testament. There's no gospel writings. This traveling preacher comes to town and starts Anthem Coeur d'Alene, right? And he begins to teach us everything we need to know about the Christian faith for like a two-year period. And then they'd leave, these, these preachers would leave, and then the church would be on their own to basically figure it out from there. How do we actually flesh this out and live this out? Like, can you imagine that? And so what they would do is they would invest deeply in these local leaders in those churches called elders. And they would tell these leaders, hey, we're entrusting you to be responsible for leading this community of people, like putting some boundaries on them, shepherding this people. And if you ever have any questions, like send us a letter so that we can help you out. And so that's the, the way the next several decades play out when these local churches have problems or they have questions. They, they would send a letter to the apostles, like the original followers of Jesus, and they would state their concerns, like, hey, we forgot about what you taught us when you, when you were here. Can you repeat that again? Like, or there's some disagreement about what you said. We can't remember what exactly you said. Can you solve this discrepancy for us? And so that's what they would do. And when the confusion became big enough and people got just super uh, uh, confused and, and frustrated, 
they, they would send a delegate to the local church to sort of sort it out in person, and that's exactly what's happening with Timothy in this city called Ephesus. The church in the city of Ephesus was a church that was dearly loved by the Apostle Paul. Paul started this church. Paul spends two years with these people. And then after he moves on to start churches elsewhere, some crazy stuff starts happening in the city of Ephesus and the church there. And it was bad enough that Paul thought he needed to send this young guy that he had been mentoring, Timothy, to go deal with the problem. And so Timothy, he sends to go begin to put the house in order of sorts in Ephesus. And that's the first letter to Timothy. That's what it's all about. Timothy's arrived in Ephesus, and now Paul's sending Timothy instructions, telling him what to focus on while he's there. And so the first thing we notice is the fact that they were given this letter that's considered inspired, like God breathed breathed this text. And then the second thing that that I think is worth pointing out um, that will be central to this whole letter is something that we often take for granted. But something that would have been radical in the first century, when Paul talks about his role as an apostle, he says this, he says that he received his command from God, our savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope. So for a first century Jew to put God and any man in the same sentence next to one another as equally able to command him was shocking for the Jewish culture, right? Then at the end, he closes with this prayer of blessing. He says, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, these words, God and Lord, had a very significant meaning to Paul and to the other Jews. They would pray this prayer every single day a prayer called the Shema. They would say, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And they would say this prayer. They would actually put it on their doorposts and they would say it as they entered and exited their home and they would repeat this prayer over and over. And Paul had taken this phrase, get this, the the Lord your God and said, the Lord Jesus, he says, God the Father. So Paul literally puts Jesus right in the middle of this prayer, like every Jew prayed, one true God, he places Jesus in the middle of it. And what's Paul doing? Paul's actually confessing that Jesus, our Lord, is the Son of God, that he's equal to, he is God the Father. Now for you and I, we're like, ah, I've heard that my whole life, I get it. This is revolutionary at their time. The fact that he's equating Jesus with their God is something that would have been monumental for them to be like, what? You're equating a man that walked this earth with the God? Like, we don't even say God's name, right? When they write it, it's like G space D. Like, we don't even say the actual word. And you're putting a man's name next to God's as our father. This is the foundation of the faith that Paul's going to lead them into. And then as as soon as he's done with this greeting, he launches straight into some practical instruction for them. And so if we were to look at how this letter is laid out, it looks like this. It's basically broken down into four sections, right? There's this greeting, and then all of chapter one is focusing on correcting a problem in the church. Something's gone wrong in the church, and so Timothy has to step in, he has to to begin to correct it. And then because of the correction, there has to be some sort of repair in the church. They have to positively say, like, how should the church be working? Like, if not this, how so? And one of the metaphors that's going to be laced throughout this whole text is this idea of a household. Right? Paul's going to treat the church like it's some kind of family, like it's a household, that, that it has to operate a certain way, that we, we all experience this in our own households, I would hope, right? When, when things go awry in our home, you have to find ways to correct the things that have gone awry. You have to create systems to protect the health of your family going forward, and so you begin to look out for your home. And so Paul's going to give some instructions to Timothy as to how he can set up some structures in the church to help the church begin to stay healthy. And then he closes with this personal instruction to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, it's not enough for you to, be, to put the house in order. Like, that, that's a portion of it. But you, Timothy, actually have to guard your own soul. Like, you have to remain faithful to the Lord just as much as you're encouraging everybody else to. And it's dangerous, dangerous if there's a, a lack of depth and maturity in anyone who sets out to lead other people. Like they have to also be mature as well. 
This often causes someone to, to lead someone else where they have not been themselves. You've heard the old adage, like, don't lead me where you haven't gone yourself. Nobody wants to follow somebody that hasn't actually walked this journey on their own. And so Paul gives these instructions to Timothy that he must himself pursue God, godliness. Now, I'm really excited about sort of God's timing in the study of these books for our congregation because I think it's a really good time, honestly, for us to check our pulse a bit. And as we've been getting, as I've been studying and leading up to um, preaching through these texts, I've been thinking like, we need to check our pulse. Like, how are we? How's our church doing? Where are we at? Take a look at our own household and ask the hard question, like, how is it going? The last several years for church in general have been crazy at every level, culturally, nationally. It's been crazy in this congregation, in our city, with tons of transitions, tons of things going on. It's a really good time for us to hit pause and say, how should a healthy church function? Given our culture, how is it that God has planned for his church to operate, to be structured, and to function today so that it can basically be pumping on all eight cylinders? And so I'm stoked to see what the Lord has for us as we walk through this letter with Timothy. I want to jump right in. Verse 3, Paul reminds Timothy of why he's there in the first place. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain Ephesus. And so Paul's reminding him of how it originally happened. Paul was moving on from Ephesus, and he tells Timothy to stay. And here's the purpose. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And I want you to ponder that passage for a second. Anytime we read one of these letters, we have sort of an interesting situation. Have you ever listened to one side of a phone call, like you're in the room, somebody's on the phone, and you can only hear one side of the conversation? Anybody ever done that, like with your spouse or anybody, right? You can hear what they're saying, but you have no idea what the person on the other side of the line is saying. You're only picking up half of the combo. And that's sort of what you have here in these texts, in these letters. You're getting half of the conversation, right? And so we have to imagine a bit of the situation based on the half that we're given. We weren't in Ephesus. I don't know about you. I was not there. We don't know exactly what's taking place. But the reason that Timothy is in Ephesus is because some people in the church were teaching false things. They were pulling people away from the faith. They were teaching things that were not true. And then he describes in a little more detail exactly what this false teaching was. He said, you must teach them not to teach false doctrines or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, I find this passage here really fascinating. In light of Acts chapter 2, the, the first church in Jerusalem, do you remember what they were devoted to? Acts 2, 242 through like 47. Do you remember what they were devoted to? The apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles. They were devoted to the core truths about Jesus. And he says they were supposed to be devoted to the good news about Jesus. Instead, they were devoted to what? Myths and endless genealogies. Now, we don't necessarily know what these myths or these endless genealogies are. Um, but there's a lot of literature that you can go read from the first century that you can Basically, basically get an idea of some of the things he's talking about. Something that was really common was to take characters or figures from the Old Testament and then begin to write these long myths about these people, like these legends about their lives, right? Like, like we would think about George Washington now, and many of us have heard false things about George Washington. Everything you hear about George Washington is not truth, but people have spun them into myths and endless genealogies, even today, where we point back to a staple in our nation's history, and we say, oh, did you hear that? George Washington did X, Y, Z, and it's not always true. The same thing is going on in the Jewish culture. For instance, we have this amazing story about a guy named Enoch that, that gets one verse in Genesis. If you don't know the story, it says that Enoch walked with God, and then what happened? He got snatched up. And it's like, what the heck happened with that dude? Like, tell me something about this guy's life. Well, some of the stories in Jewish history 
say that they start taking people like Enoch and they start developing his story a little bit. And they start teaching it. And he, he's kind of an icon in their faith. And so the things they would develop and say about him, they began to believe it's truth. And they begin to devote their lives to these things. Possibly some of these people are grabbing like some of these kind of fringe Jewish religious stuff that was outside of God's word. And they're saying like, this is the stuff that we need to focus on. Like this is the most important stuff. This is how you become really spiritual is to focus on these things. And so they're bringing that into the church and they're saying that, 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 that this is what we really need to be paying attention to as a church. Sometimes when you read the New Testament, you're gonna find that there's false teaching that's like a direct contradiction, right, to the good news about Jesus. There are sections where they deny that Jesus really came in the flesh, and you're like, yeah, that's definitely false. Or there's sections where they, they, they deny that he really died, and that's false. They, there's sections where they deny the resurrection, and it's false. But there's something that can be equally as damaging to flat out denial. And that's like an intense distraction. It is a day and age, it is a thing that is so prevalent in our day and age today. There's not just flat out denials, there's just flat out distractions everywhere. Myths and endless genealogies that get our minds spinning, that we begin to get lost in conspiracy theories and all these things that actually become our driving factor in our lives. It's not much different today than it was then. But when somebody takes something that's way over here on the fringe, like way over here in the margin that isn't even part of scripture, that's not part of the center of what it is that we're supposed to be about, and they say this should be the church's focus, like we should devote all of our time and attention to it. this is what we have to rally all of our resources around. And Paul is opposing these people who are trying to take that focus off of the church, off of the good news of Jesus, off of his death, off of his resurrection, off of how you can uh, like be made to be more like Christ, and they put the focus on whatever their little pet speculation or little pet doctrine is. And here's what he says it leads to. Look at verse four. He says, which promotes speculations rather than stewardship. Really interesting text. Which promotes what? Speculations. Your mind spins out. All these other ideas that you begin to run with. But what it doesn't promote is what? Stewardship. Actually doing something about this. Actually living this out. Doing the gospel. Rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Like they're, they're devoting themselves to these speculations because the focus of the church deviated from its heart and its purpose to whatever this thing over here is or that thing over there is. The work of the church is not going forward and that's what's so devastating to Paul. They, they've sort of let the air out of the tires of the church and Paul says it actually has to be stopped. We have to sort of nip this in the bud and then you're gonna see Paul do this throughout this letter. This is one of his strategies. He's gonna actually contrast and move back and forth between the negative and the positive and make it really clear that if, they're, that if what they're doing is promoting controversy and not advancing the work of God, then what should the work of God be? Look at verse five, he tells them. The aim of our charge, the point of all of this, which is to stop the false teaching, is love. And it's love that, that, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. You see, Paul's saying one of the clear evidences that what they're doing is not of Jesus is that it's promoting controversy and it's fighting, and it's creating division in the church instead of a love and a unity for one another. And so you can imagine a situation where somebody could become really passionate about some issue over here or some issue over there, and they might even be right. They might even have the best perspective on that issue. But because they've left focusing on the good news of Jesus and they begin to focus on this issue, they've actually now made all their brothers and sisters in Christ their enemies. They've turned them all away. 
And Paul says, hey, any teaching that turns your brothers and sisters in Christ into your enemies is actually not of Christ. It's actually not about love. And when Jesus talked about how the world is gonna recognize us, do you remember what Jesus said? How will the world know us? By our love for one another. They're gonna recognize you by your love for one another. So if somebody thinks that they're on a crusade for God and so in doing so, they're, they're leading them to hate their brothers and sisters in Christ, we can pretty confidently say that they're on the wrong crusade. It's the wrong mission. Paul says the aim of this instruction, he says, is love. He says love that comes from a pure heart. The word purity there is the word for cleansing. It probably refers to a forgiving heart. It comes from a heart that has been forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus, which seems to, to, to point to this idea that when you realize what Jesus has done for you, that will lead to love for others, even those who disagree with you. It comes from a pure heart, it comes from a good conscience. It's the word conscience. It means exactly what you think it means. It means the ability to tell between right and wrong, and so it comes from a heart that's being forgiven, been forgiven, it comes from a conscience that's able to choose good from bad, and then finally he says it comes from a sincere faith, a trust in Jesus that is not filled with hypocrisy, that, that's ready to be consistent in everything, and Paul's saying when you have a forgiven heart, when you have a desire to do what's good, and, 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 a, and a sincere, like non-hypocritical faith, that leads towards love for other people. It's like the perfect equation for love. Your brothers and sisters in Christ and then those beyond. And what's happening amongst these teachers that are sort of off on these pet doctrines is that it does not reflect that kind of love. It does not reflect the love of Christ. By the way, if love for each other will show the world that we're followers of Jesus, what will division and infighting and hatred show the world? it probably will not show the world much good about Christ. It makes Jesus look horrible. And that's why Paul is so concerned to correct it. And so he's gonna jump back here and he's gonna lay into these false teachers a bit in verse six. He says, certain persons, not gonna name you, right? Certain, certain people, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And I love that Paul is willing to call it here. They wanna put themselves in, in this position of, of being informed teachers, right? When, when in fact, they're totally ignorant. Now, allow me to rant here for just a second. We live in a day and age where we have never had as much access to information as we do today. There's information everywhere. I saw an app a couple weeks ago that was used, is used for pharmacists. And um, it has every piece of data and the, the ability to calculate everything you would ever want to use. Anyone can go buy this app from the app store, you can download it and you can begin to use it. It's sort of like pharmacy school in an app. So, let me ask you a question. If I went and bought that app, would you trust me to diagnose your issue and prescribe you medication today? I sure hope not. You'd be like, dude's not a doctor. You know, like, who does he think he is? Well, the app said, like, ah, I don't know about that. Someone who has zero education in anything, like pharmaceutical, pres prescribing drugs for you or your family is just nonsense. And, and what that tells us is that access to information does not equal knowledge and wisdom. It's not the same thing. Just because you have access to all the info does not mean that you're knowledgeable and that you're wise. And I am amazed at the number of references people like give me to, to research where the research, the video that they sent me is a dude sitting in his car saying something in front of the phone, his camera on his phone. And I'm like, I just don't buy it. You know what I mean? Like, homie's sitting in a Mazda Miata, like, trying to give me, like that, I just don't buy it. How do I know that that's real? I don't even know who the dude is. What kind of qualifications does he have? And that's considered researching, 
we consider that being informed these days. Just because we saw the video, just because somebody sent me the Facebook link. And so you see people getting insights into biblical truths today from someone they've never met and somebody that they've never walked in community with whose qualification is that they have a webcam. It's unbelievable. And we just buy it as biblical truth because somebody said it. Paul's saying that these people are presenting themselves as teachers, but they're actually ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. In fact, over and over again in the New Testament, the ability to teach is actually tied to this accountability to a community to walk in godliness. I think it's really interesting. If you can't see that someone is following Jesus in their daily life, you should be incredibly hesitant to look to them as your teacher. Honestly, if they're not modeling it and walking out and you haven't watched them in action, do they display humility? Do they actually love their wives? Do they actually treat others the way that Jesus would treat them? Do they actually know the word of God? I've watched them in action. I've watched their interactions with one another. Like, I know that they love God because I can see it. But in this day and age, we bypass all of that and we just buy whatever's given to us. Hence the church's issue today with regards to leaders that fall, who don't have lives that match the things that they preach, and you never knew it, but you bought every word that they said. I think this is the power of the local church, to be honest with you guys, that we get to watch this in action, the word of God. I'm not saying I have it all figured out. I'm far from it. But my life is a fishbowl. You, you can ask my wife, if I truly love her and if I love my kids. You can ask my wife if I actually display the character of a follower of Jesus. You can ask the staff if I actually know what I'm talking about with scripture, probably not, right? But I try. Um, my point is this though, there's a portion of teaching that has to be intrinsically tied to community and living this out with one another because you have to see whether or not the person is not just saying it, but whether they actually display it and walk it out themselves. I can follow those people. There's a handful of older men in this room this morning who I spend time with because at some point in my life I made a decision that I didn't want to be mentored by 45-year-old men. I want a 70-year-old man who's been in ministry for 30-plus years in his life, still loves his wife and loves his kids. His kids love Jesus. They have a heart for the church stronger now than they've ever had before, and they continue to walk and serve Jesus at 75, just like they did at 20 when they gave their lives to him. I want those people in my life. Why? Because they've lived it and walked it. Not because they feed me information. They live it out. And so Paul, when he describes these teachers, he says they present themselves as authoritative. They act like it's just so authoritative and it's real, but they actually don't know what they're talking about. And so he tells Timothy, you need to shut these guys up. Like they're destroying the church. And my concern for the church in America in general, particularly even for our church, is that we would spend more time listening and being shaped by voices we do not know than seeking Jesus Christ together in community in the scriptures. I want that for our church, that we do this together. So now Paul's gonna turn after he's sort of put down the way that they're, he sort of puts down the way that they're handling the law, and it seems that that they're probably focused on some kind of Jewish teaching based on what we would call the Old Testament. They're talking about heroes, talking about certain restrictions on the law, like we don't know exactly what it is, but there's a ton of confusion in the early church because these new churches were no longer practicing the sacrifices. All the things associated with the Old Testament law, they weren't practicing them, and so there's probably something going on around that here, and that's why Paul says in verse eight, now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. That speaks to this issue of wisdom and teaching. And he goes on to say, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Paul says this in multiple places, that the purpose of the law, of the rules, 
was actually to point out to identify our sin. That's exactly what it's there for. Has anybody sped through Dalton Gardens recently? Come on now. Some of you did it on the way here. This is a prophetic word for you, the conviction of the Lord. When you go through Dalton Gardens and there's like flashing speed lights, speed limit signs, that doesn't mean that you, they're stoked that you're coming into Dalton Gardens, right? That, the light flashes because you're going over the speed limit. It's to identify the fact that you are not staying within the limit that was given you. That's the purpose of the law. It's not for the just, it's for those that are sinners. Those that actually need to look at the law and see like, that's how far off I am and I can't get there on my own. And so who is it that justifies us and makes us righteous? It's Jesus, he's the culmination of the law. We find it in him, we're made righteous through him. And so he goes on to, to make this list. And, and this list, it sort of mirrors the Ten Commandments. And so I want to play with this a little bit this morning. But he starts with this list of, uh, of things that speak to our relationship with God. That's how he starts out. He says, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he sort of shifts to the relationship with mothers and fathers, like in the most extreme way, right? Not honor your father and mother, but those who don't honor their father, father and mother. But he says, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Then he goes to murders. And then the next command he speaks to is adultery. He says, the sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality. By the way, a little side note here, sexual sin is sexual sin. I don't care what it is, period. There's not some extra class of sexual sin. So notice that Paul puts practicing homosexuality and adultery right next to one another in this paragraph. All forms of sexual immorality. The Greek word here for uh, sexual immorality is porneia. It's where we get the word porn. And this word porneia actually means any sexually illicit behavior outside of biblical marriage, anything. And Paul, throws that all on the list together. And so we live in a culture, especially in the church, where we like to place hierarchies on different levels of sin. This one's worse than others, or at least I don't do that, I just did this. Paul sort of lumps it all into one category and says, this is sin, all of this. And he does this to help you understand, like when he says the law is not for the just, it's we realize we're far off and we desperately need Jesus. Like, but God has one design for sex, and that's between a man and a woman, a husband and wife, in biblical marriage. And then the next commandment in the Ten Commandments speaks to the ownership of property, but look what he says. He says, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. So why would he go from stealing in the Ten Commandments to slave trades, slave trade? And in these examples, Paul's sort of picking the most extreme example he possibly can. And so if the standard is to honor your mother and father, how far can that go? The most extreme would be to actually kill your mom and dad. And if we're called to not steal somebody else's property, what would be the most extreme form imaginable with regards to stealing? To treat another person as property, as slaves. It's fascinating the way Paul lays this out. So right here in this list of sins that dishonor God, the idea of the slave trader like sort of leaps off the page, like it's condemned as the worst abuse of stealing property and actually treating another person as property. And so then he goes to liars and perjurers to finish it out and he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so what's the standard? All of the teachings that we talked about, all ethics, all morality, what does it all sort of have to line up with? It's the gospel. The, the, that word gospel means the good news about Jesus Christ. And that's the standard, that's sort of home base and everything comes back to that. And so I wanna end by this, like I wanna have a little bit of fun and make this very personal for us this morning. What are some things that we as a culture have faced over the last four years? Any controversies? A handful, right? 
anything that's taken our attention a little bit, maybe off of Christ and put it on something else, lots of things. I made a quick list for us. Uh, my goal was to offend everybody in this list, so you're welcome. <laughs> we had a fight over an election in 2020. We've got January 6th, we've got masks, we've got vaccines, we've got critical race theory, fights over cancer culture, fights over growth in our own community, in our city, the economy, the housing market, how, we can, how can we afford to live here, who did that? I mean, like, well, that's a cause of all these people that have moved here. Like, there's all kinds of quarreling and divisions that have crept their way into the church. I've heard hundreds more on top of this that people list as the central challenge for the church over the last few years. These are the topics. People said that these were the things that were worth breaking fellowship over. People leave churches over this. And I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that not a single one of these is central to the gospel of Jesus. Not one. Does that mean that they're not important issues? No way. It's totally fine for you to have a strong opinion about something, like, I think that's great. What's not okay is to draw a line in the sand and begin to say, if you don't agree with me on this issue, you have no fellowship with me in Jesus Christ. That's division in the church. That's unacceptable. That's what we cannot allow to happen in the church. That's why we're not gonna be a pro-vaccine church or an anti-vaccine church or a Republican church or a Democrat church. Like, we're not gonna play sides or play games. We're here to talk Jesus and to point people on the one thing that will actually establish a strong foundation that is timeless versus the things that will come and go and the conspiracies and the endless genealogies and the speculations and everything that will continue to repeat over your life. Sometimes we need to be drawn back to what the heck is actual truth? It's Jesus. He transcends all of these things. As a church, we're gonna be the faith in Jesus who died and rose again, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and make disciples church. That's it. And just like when Paul pointed out, pointed to the law, like that doesn't mean that there are no biblical ethics, right? you're gonna to have to work out what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Like you have to figure out how to sift through that on your own. And that's gonna to lead to practical questions, but the point is, when you actually move to those more practical issues, we're gonna be a community that comes together and is actually okay with disagreeing about how these things flush themselves out. And we're gonna love each other regardless. This happened in the first century church. They knew they weren't supposed to worship idols, so they had a fight over it. What does that mean when, when we know there's meat in the marketplace that was dedicated to idols, they asked. And there are people, some people who said it doesn't even matter. Eat it as long as you're not worshiping it. And other people said, I can't touch it. And what was Paul's answer? <laughs> Did he pick a side and say, you're right, you guys are wrong, you're out? No, he said the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. And I think today, Paul would probably say the kingdom of God is not a matter of politics or masks or vaccines, the economy, your first world problems that you deal with in America. Whatever controversy that it is that we're all up in arms about, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have strong feelings about it or have a strong opinion. Like, that's amazing. It means that we're not gonna divide the church over it. That Jesus is gonna bind us together. And then among Jesus' early followers, the, the controversy of the day for Israel was Rome and how to respond to the Roman occupation. Like, they're taking over our people. And so among Jesus' followers, he had two men that took very different approaches. He had Levi, a tax collector, a guy who was part of the system, he was complicit in the system, and he had Simon the Zealot, whose conviction was to honor God, we need to take up arms and fight against Rome. So can you imagine the first time those two sat down for dinner? 
two drastically different people. And so here's the question. Where in the Gospels does Jesus solve that issue for them? Where does he say this side is right and that side is wrong? He doesn't say it. And apparently Matthew and Simon could both follow Jesus despite their disagreement on a really important issue to them. He still invited them to follow after him. And so the goal of this command, as stated in this letter, is love. It's it's love that comes from a pure heart. It's love that comes from a pure conscience. It's love that comes from a pure faith. And so if I were to summarize what I think Paul is saying in one big sentence, one big idea, I'd say this. That God's work is advanced when God's people unite in love around the gospel of Jesus. That's what the church is called to do. I want to invite the the worship team to come up, and we're going to take communion in a second. But I just want to challenge us that this is going to be our focus. This is what we're going to be divided, or not divided over, devoted to. But as a church, maybe some will be divided over it, I don't know. As a church, we're going to be committed to the gospel of Jesus, to loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We're going to be devoted to this. We're not going to get lost in the controversies and the speculations. We're going to continue to pull each other back to Jesus. Again, it doesn't mean that you don't have opinions. It just means we will not divide over our opinions. We will be united on the things that are actually true. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to take communion. Jesus, I thank you um, for your word. I thank you for what feels like a rebuke in this chapter, God, of just realizing the issues that Paul is speaking against in Ephesus to Timothy are not much different than the ones we face today. And many of us, even in this room, God, have got so lost and spun out on all these different controversies and issues, things that we have made front and center We've given the throne to them in our hearts. But I pray for us as a church, God, that we'd return you to your throne. God, that we'd set you front and center and say, Jesus, though I may have opinions on things, those things will not divide me from people that you love dearly, that I can be united with in you. In fact, Jesus, we know that the most beautiful picture that's painted to the world of unity is when people who don't think alike, act alike, talk alike, actually find unity in something in a world that people can't find unity on anything. And the picture that paints to the world, Jesus, is that you're stronger than all of those other things. That you transcend all of the things that the enemy wants to use the world to divide in us. And so I pray for our hearts that you'd strengthen us. I pray that you'd unite us. God, I pray that you would be the main, the primary thing, our sole sustenance, Jesus, that you'd have front and center of this church, God, to lead her. I thank you for every individual in this room, God, as I know there's certain parts of these opinions and stuff that push buttons and sort of prick things in our hearts. But I'm earnestly asking this morning for humility to take place in us, God flush out the things that the enemy wants to use to divide us. And may we see others the way that you see them, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to take communion. And um, there's just four things that I want to remind you of with regards to communion. I've said this many times. The last few years for me when it came to communion, have been so much more special because I've chosen to make it a more reverent time in my own life than I ever had before. To actually find the significance in communion and to not just do it to do it and come forward to take it because everybody's coming forward to take it. This morning, I'm gonna ask you guys to stop and to think for a second. And there's four things that I want you to contemplate. One, I want you to contemplate the fact that communion is a memorial. When you come up here and you take the bread and you take the cup, you are looking back and you're saying, 
This represents Jesus' body broken for me and his blood shed for me. This is a memorial that you're partaking in. You're doing this to remember what he did for us. Second, there's a part of communion that is a proclamation. Because when you take it, you're literally coming forward and you're saying, I believe this. Like, I actually believe this. When I take the blood and I take his body and I partake of it, I actually believe in the staying power of Jesus Christ and what his body broken and his blood shed was able to accomplish for me. Salvation, forgiveness, eternity. You come forward and what you're saying to everybody else is, I'm not a person that just talks about this. I'm a person that partakes of it because I believe it's actually true. Thirdly, there's a part of communion that is reflection. And this part, we tend to just pass over real quick, especially if you're like an extrovert like me and you don't like emotions, right? Um, we tend to just brush over this part because we don't want to stop and think. But I'm going to ask you before you come forward this morning to take a second and reflect. How is your heart this morning before Jesus? In light of what we just talked about, is your heart gravitated towards lots of different things and in doing so, you've been distracted from the faith? Is your heart this morning bitter and hurt? Do you have something against a brother or sister in this room? And up till this point, you haven't possessed the humility to ask for forgiveness. Where is your heart as you stand here this morning? Because when you come partake of this, I'm gonna remind you that what you're saying is, I believe Jesus' body broken, blood shed, death and resurrection is so powerful that it transcends all the things that could divide me from somebody else. And so in doing this, you're saying, you'll grant to others the same forgiveness that was granted to you. You'll treat others the same way that he treated you. You'll see others the same way Jesus sees you. You'll extend love and grace to others in the same way that it was extended to you. And then the last thing is this, my favorite part, is that unity happens in communion. Something happens when the church rallies around this moment right here. The church in model, in form, has changed a lot over 2,000 years. And there's a lot that we'd say, eh, I don't even know if this is the way they did it. There's a couple things that we can come back to. Teaching, prayer, and communion were things that have been part of the church, core to the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. This is what binds us together. Is that not amazing? As you come forward this morning, take this with significance. Do it because you believe it. And after you do it, commit to walking that out when you leave this afternoon. Jesus, I pray for us as we take communion. Thank you for your gift bloodshed and your body broken. Thank you, Jesus, as we just imagine the brutal beating that you forwent upon the cross for our sakes, Jesus. Your life lost on our behalf. And this morning, what we're celebrating, God, is that you did not stay there, that you resurrected, and that your spirit is alive and well, and that your church is full of power and more vibrant today than it ever has been before, that over 2,000 years, your spirit has continued to move, Jesus. And we are sharers in this amazing gift. And I pray this morning as we take communion that we do this rejoicing in the gift you've offered us, Jesus. Have your way with us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Come forward and grab the elements and you can go back to your seats and take it.